So our title of our sermon this morning is God's Great Reversal, Abused Outcast to Spotless Bride. And our text will be Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. As I was considering the topic for today's sermon, obviously, I was considering the fact that it was Mother's Day. And I wish a very happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here and who are listening online. I also give thanks for my sisters in Christ that are here and online that are spiritual mothers to people, if not physical mothers. The ladies that make up our church are very important to us. You're all loved. You're all in our prayers, and you're a blessing to us. So as I was considering this sermon, I was thinking about what was going on in the world today, and just like Brother Daniel mentioned in the, uh, in the beginning of the service, I couldn't help get from my mind what was going on in the Supreme Court that we all heard about. And is this horrible and, frankly, unjust and illegal decision that came about so long ago in the 70s, Roe versus Wade, will this be undone? And if, even if it is undone at the federal level, what difference would it make to us here in California? Would things change? Probably not, but it's a step, isn't it? It's a step in a proper direction, perhaps even for some a God-honoring direction, albeit they may not realize that. So thinking along these lines and thinking about, you know, motherhood, praying about this, what came to mind was the fact that we now, the generations before us, our children now, and the generations to come, we've all been impacted by three great rebellions that the book of Genesis tells us about. And these rebellions, the three of them, all involve human beings in conjunction with angelic beings acting in a great transgression against God. And we are impacted by that. As a result, we live in a world where evil seems to prevail. It's, it's in the sense that it's all around us, not prevail that will eventually, you know, that it will conquer. It will not conquer. The Bible tells us that. But it's, it's, it's prevalent anyway, isn't it? And we deal with the ramifications of this evil in violence, in, in, in lies, in, in the fact that we're misled in every way we turn. So it's very easy to look at these things in despair, isn't it? And especially in our Christian culture in the United States, that is, that is predominantly um, uh, dispensational, th- that the idea of all is lost is, is all-encompassing, even in Christianity. That the church has failed, we of Christians have failed, our only hope is Christ's return. And we are trapped behind enemy lines until then, and there's virtually nothing we can do. Well, that is absolutely not the message of God's word. And so that's what I wanted to talk about this morning. And what I wanted to talk about, believe it or not, is a classical romance. Now, there once upon a time was a very well-known, I don't know if he is anymore, probably not so well-known, and prolific English writer, G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton, in his writing, he suggested that every classical romance must have three elements, three characters, if you will, in it. First of all is the princess. The princess is a thing or a person or something to be loved. Then there's the dragon. The dragon is a thing to be fought. And then there is a knight, the one who fights against the dragon for the princess. He loves, the knight loves, and the knight fights. And the example that Chesterton uses is the tale of St. George and the dragon. He says, this is your classical romance. Well, believe it or not, that tale is found 
in the Bible, specifically in the second great angelic rebellion. And that's what we're going to look at. But we have to realize we're dealing with ancient Jewish literature. And ancient Jewish literature is not set out the way English literature is, right? In the middle of the, of the story, in the Jewish, ancient Jewish story, is usually the great reveal. That's where you figure out something. That's where it's demonstrated what the whole point is. That's where the key is. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in the middle of the story. And then we're going to work forwards and backwards to see how this great romance is acted out in human history. And we're going to start in, if you've opened your Bibles, you've already seen where we're starting, and you're probably wondering, how in the world is a genealogy in the Bible connected to a classical romance? I know, <laughs> genealogies are not the most exciting thing in the Bible, are they? And it's okay, you can admit, you know, not out loud, obviously, that that's something you often skip over when you're reading the Bible as a genealogy. I can't even pronounce these names. I don't know who these people are, most of them. What's the point? Well, <laughs> there is a point. And often the point is things that are unusual in the genealogy, right? And once we know our Bible fairly well, we can start to compare genealogies and we see differences. We understand why they're being revealed. And they're not always things that seem applicable to us. Sometimes it's establishing the lineage of the, uh, the, the priests, the, the, the Levites, right? When they rebuild the temple, they have to decide, okay, who can serve? And they establish that through, through a genealogy. Well, Matthew's genealogy does something Remarkable. And so there's only two genealogies in the New Testament, Matthew's and Luke's, and they both deal with the genealogy of Christ. So we're going to read that. But we need to consider the genealogies, biblical genealogies are different from what we might do with an ancestral family tree, right? You might you know, join Ancestry.com and, and try and create your family tree. And when you do that, you want to list all of your ancestors, don't you? You want all of the generations, right? Biblical genealogies are not concerned with that. They are not family trees. They often skip generations. They often, uh, if there's two genealogies of the same period, one may have a certain member of a generation and the other will have another member of the generation. So they, they aren't family trees. That's, that's the main point I want to get across here. So as we read Matthew's genealogy, understanding that it's different from Luke's, that there are things that each of them have that the other doesn't, and our purpose isn't to examine that, but just understand that's, that's part of genealogy. As I read through this, Try and spot what you think is unusual. Try and see if something jumps out to you. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you what it is, but let's just see if, if, we, can, if we can spot it as, we, as you follow along as I read here. So, Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, 
and Sheatel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Ibiud, and Ibiud, the father of Iliakim, and Iliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zaduk, and Zaduk, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Wow, that was kind of a tongue twister for me. Thank you for um, following along with me. And um, so what I want you to notice in this, and you may notice there, there's some, there are some things that stick out that are different from other genealogies, all well and good. But the things I want to focus on is that Matthew includes women in his genealogy. Luke does not. So we have Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5a, Ruth in 5b, and Bathsheba, who's referred to as the wife of Uriah in verse 6. And then last of all, of course, we have Mary in verse 16. So this, this idea of women being included in Hebrew genealogies is not unheard of. It's not common. It doesn't happen all the time. And when it happens, there's a reason for it. Usually, usually it has to do with differentiating offspring of a wife as opposed to offspring of a concubine. It's not the case here. It's not what we're concerned with. But when you find it elsewhere, it's that. Or it's the idea of, of determining uh, certain clans in tribes, what clans make up the, uh, the, the tribes. So th- we know just from the way Matthew starts out this genealogy, we can tell that his purpose is to establish the Jewish bona fides for Jesus of Nazareth as the Jewish Messiah. We can see that in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice right off the bat that, that Matthew's establishing that Jesus is of the royal line of David of the tribe of the Israelites, whose great patriarch is Abraham. So we see that there, and and all commentators basically um, will say something along the same lines, that that seems to be a big point in Matthew's gospel, that it's directed towards Jewish believers to establish the the, um, fact that that, that Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Jewish scriptures as Messiah. If that's the case, and it is, I'm not, I'm not arguing it's not, but here's a question for you. Why doesn't Matthew include the great matriarchs of Israel in this genealogy? We think of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Why aren't they included in here? You would think that that would be very important. But what is even more unusual is that the first four of these women have connections to the Gentiles. Two of them, Rahab and Ruth, are clearly Gentiles. The other two, Tamar and Bathsheba, I'm going to present to you arguments that show that they could be Gentiles, or at the very least, they are closely connected to the Gentile culture. So then, that leads us to the next question. Why would a Jewish gospel writer a member of the inner band of disciples of the Jewish Messiah, writing account, an account to establish the messianic bona fides of Jesus from Jewish scriptures include Gentile women in the genealogy. Gentile women. This is a class that is completely outcast from a faithful Jewish man. Yet Matthew puts them in his genealogy. Why? This is absolutely fascinating. And there's been many, many ideas that have been bounced around over the years. I'm going to present to you my argument, what I think it is. It comes from other scholars' research. It's not just something I dreamed up. So we have to consider, first off, what could Matthew's purpose in this be? I think we see it in verse 16. Look at verse 16. There's something unique about the birth of Jesus that Matthew is writing about. And it says in verse 16, And Jacob, 
the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called Christ. Now this preposition, of whom, in the Greek, is in the feminine form. This indicates Jesus' human parentage is solely of Mary, that Joseph is not included in the parentage. Joseph is listed as Mary's husband, but not as Jesus' father. And note, as we read through this, if you picked up on it, every other male in this genealogy is listed as, quote, the father of, quote, someone, except for Joseph. Joseph is not. So there's a uniqueness there, right, that, that Matthew wants to get across to us. He's attesting to the uniqueness of Jesus' human birth, that it was not a result of being fathered by a human male through the normal biological reproductive process. We read a little bit later in verse 18, while still a virgin, Mary was, as Matthew writes, with a child from the Holy Spirit. So there's the answer as to how this is unique. And in in verses 19 through 21, we, we read about Joseph when he discovers that Mary is pregnant, that his betrothed maiden bride-to-be is with child, he plans on divorcing her, right? Because she obviously has been with another man until an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and he sees... She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Luke also attests to this in in his gospel. So we have here the doctrine of what we call the virgin birth, right? We're all familiar with it. It is attested to by all the New Testament scriptures. It is foretold by the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 7.14, for example, And so it's a fundamental bedrock tenet of the Christian faith. And the church has upheld this doctrine from its very inception. We've never deviated from it. To deny the virgin birth puts one outside of orthodox Christianity. You would be what we call heterodox. You are not orthodox if you deny this. So... Maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's, we kind of know that. Why are you harping on it? Well, I'm emphasizing it for a reason. Because we're going to talk about something that's kind of similar. And I want you to understand that, okay, we accept this virgin birth, the conception by the Holy Spirit, not through human reproductive means, not through a physical relationship. We accept that as historical and theological fact because it's going to tie into what we're going to talk about. Matthew in this genealogy, what's he doing? What he what he's doing, I say he is telegraphing about a horrible transgression by spiritual beings and human beings and how the incarnation of God the Son reverses this transgression. Undoes it, completely undoes it in a very remarkable and surprising way. You you know this story in bits and pieces. But what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and bring it all together. We're going to be going from Old Testament, you know, to to the end of the Bible in the New Testament to bring all of this together. And often, that's how God tells us these stories. That if we only know the, the, the Bible by isolated events and isolated scriptures, we we're going to miss this. I'm going to try and bring this to you. So, we're going to start in the first book of the Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. This has often been described as a very unusual and hard to figure out passage. <clears throat> and we're going to be dealing with this. <clears throat> And it reads, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So we have this unusual phrase in Genesis 6.1, the sons of God, in Hebrew, bene ha Elohim. It's used in this passage and in every other passage in the Old Testament where this exact phrase is used. It refers to angelic beings. It refers to high-ranking celestial beings. We find them also in the genre of literature known as Second Temple Jewish writings. In the Second Temple Jewish writings, they kind of give us a backstory behind Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which is a bare-bones story. It doesn't have a lot of detail in it. Well, the Second Temple Jewish writings do give more detail, especially First Enoch in the Book of Jubilees and some of the Dead Sea Scrolls talk about this a lot. And these sons of God in the Second Temple writings are known as watchers. Now, we find the watchers also in the, only, and only in the Bible in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4 talks about the watchers. And the watchers are obviously, again, high-ranking angelic beings who are sent by Yahweh, God Almighty, to carry out his decree upon the earth. They are given authority to carry out what God wants done. Daniel even adds the term holy ones to them. And in, in Daniel uh, chapter, chapter 4, um, we can see that they are not functioning as evil fallen beings. So watchers or sons of God does not automatically mean fallen angels. It's a category, a class, a ranking, if you will, of, of angels. And there are some that are fallen, and there are some that are righteous. So the human women in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the Benat Ha-Adam, the text doesn't tell us that they have any say-so in what goes on in these marriages. And it's clear from the Hebrew that it is, they are marriages. They're not like these women are, are, are drugged and then taken and physically assaulted and end up having children. There, there are marriages that occur. But it doesn't say that the women are willing participants, right? And think about the cultural context. Were women in days of old, were they willing participants in their marriages? Most often not. Most often, girls were given as brides to obtain power for their father, for their family, for their tribe, for their clan, to to gain better position, to gain influence. They basically were used for uh, purposes of uniting, right? Of bringing uh, different groups uh, together. So they're chosen by these powerful spiritual beings and subsequently give birth to what Genesis calls the Nephilim. This is basically giant, half-breed uh, creatures, half-angelic, half-human. Now, this was an idea that all of the ancient Jews and the early church up to about the 5th century held to. There was really no dissension. And then something happened in the 5th century. The Western church lost its ability somewhere along the line to translate and interpret biblical Hebrew. All they could use was the Latin. And Augustine, the great church father, he does not have any idea about the backstory, how the Jews explain Genesis 6, 1, 4. So he popularizes what's called the Sethite view of this. And it's involving the sons of God are the, are the uh, sons of Seth and the women uh, of men are the sons of Cain. And it's the intermarriage between a righteous line and an unrighteous line. Well, we don't have time to go into that, um, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of major, major holes in that, in that idea. So when we regained our ability in the West to translate biblical Hebrew, and then when we discovered 
many of the Second Temple writings, and when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can see that the ancient Jews and the ancient church, the early church for the first four centuries, all believed something completely different from the Sethite view. And what's been discovered more recently, in fact, I think it was in 2010, if I remember right, a scholar who specializes in cuneiform writings of Mesopotamia. Now, that's a niche occupation, if you ask me. You study cuneiform of Mesopotamia. And so this scholar finds in the cuneiform writings of the Babylonian Empire the story of the Nephilim in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It matches exactly, except the Nephilim are called the Apkalu, and they are considered cultural heroes, that they are the ones who made Babylon a great civilization because they taught the Babylonians secret stuff. Well, think about what we know from Daniel and what we know from other things about the, um, the Chaldean, uh, uh, the, 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 the Magi in Babylon. They, they had supposedly tapped into secret, illicit arts. Second Temple Jewish literature says the same thing. In the book of Enoch, it tells us that these watchers, that they taught men, mankind, things that man was not supposed to know that involved the way to seduce, the way to make war, that they taught man the painting of eyes, cosmetics, that they taught man metallurgy and how to make instruments of war, and sorcery, and astrology, these things that they were not supposed to teach humankind, for which they were called to answer before the high court of Yahweh, and they were condemned for this, that they were wicked rulers. They ruled unjustly. And what they did also, according to the Second Temple literature that matches Genesis 6, 1, 4, is they took wives of human women. And then we have the Nephilim that come out of that. The Nephilim are the source, according to Jewish sources, this is where demons come from. Demons are not fallen angels. There's absolutely no reason a high-ranking celestial being, an angel of God's court who has fallen, wants to inhabit a broken-down human body. They are not embodied spirits. However, the offspring that we read about, the Nephilim, they are embodied until God orders them all wiped out and he sentences them as half-breeds. They do not belong in heaven. They do not belong in the abode of the dead with the human dead. They are to wander the earth. And the Jews say this is where we get demonization. We have these once embodied spirits that now are disembodied and they desperately want to be back in a body. And Jesus deals with this, doesn't he? In the Gospels, one of his major missions is the rescue of people from what he calls unclean spirits. Why are they unclean? Because there's a marriage between an offspring of resulting from celestial being and a human being. That is an unclean union. That explains that term. So Genesis 6, 1 through 4, think all that in our mind. Really, the point of it in the Bible is it's a theological polemic. It turns this idea of the apokalu that the Mesopotamians have, turns it on its, its head that these are not cultural heroes. These are evil beings. This should never have occurred. It's a completely, completely different take uh, on the story. So these marriages in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, they corrupt the earth in, in a prelude to the flood story. So we've seen the death of them in the flood, and afterwards is an explanation for demons. And we see the dispensing of forbidden divine knowledge by them to humanity. That was a cause for the proliferation of human depravity. And we read about that in Genesis 6, verse 5, where, where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. So it, man does not escape responsibility in this. However, there is a transangelic transgression that makes it even greater. So this is the cause of sin on the earth. Just like in the fall in Genesis 3, it's not solely human, it's not solely angelic, but we have both in the garden, don't we, that unite in rebellion. The same thing we have here in Genesis 6. So this is the second great rebellious transgression against God involving humans and angels. And then we're going to delve into how this connects to Matthew's genealogy. The second transgression is a much broader effort to corrupt mankind by angels. Again, just like in the garden, targeting human women. And what resulted in this? Most of the life on earth, human life, was wiped out. And God recreated And the echoes of this rebellion have been felt throughout the world ever since in the form of demonization, right? In the form of warfare, in the form of sexual promiscuity and sexual, illicit sexual activity. And the first four women named in Matthew's genealogy of Christ also participated in this sexual activity that was considered suspicious at best and unrighteous at worst. And even, and this is a tender area to tread, it was even something that Mary was accused of, as you can well imagine, being a betrothed virgin and being obviously with child. And in fact, the Babylonian Talmud, written centuries later, explains that Jesus was an illegitimate child of a union between a Roman soldier and this Jewish girl. But these women, these these four women that we want to concentrate on, much like the daughters of men, these women are thrust into shady sexual situations by events that were really not of their own making, in which they were in truth abused outcasts. And I think we should see this, that we need to recognize and have sympathy for the particulars of their situation. And the first of which I want to talk about is the first one listed in verse 3, Tamar. Now, her story is told in Genesis chapter 38. She was taken as a wife for Judah's firstborn son, Ur. Now, Ur was put to death by the Lord for wickedness. We're not told what his wickedness is, just that God put him to death because of that. And so, Tamar is now childless, right? She had no children by Ur. Ur. So Judah ordered his next son, Onan, to enter into what we call a Leverite marriage, or Leverite marriage. And that's just a Latin term for um, uncle or brother, uh, brother of a father. And this was a custom in many cultures, but, but in, uh, in the ancient Near East, where if a woman's husband died and the woman was childless, then if the man had a brother, that brother's duty was to take the widow as a wife and give her children. And the first child would be considered, for all intents and purposes, the child of his deceased brother. So his deceased brother's name would not perish from the earth. So Onan is given this responsibility, and he's not really cool with it. And he takes steps so that he does not, that Tamar does not have a child by him that will actually be his brother's child. See, this waters down your inheritance because now, you know, if your older brother dies, you now are the firstborn son living. You're going to inherit dad's stuff, right? But then you, you're told you've got to marry the widow and you've got to give the widow an offspring for your brother. Well, this kid that's really, you know, biologically speaking and in our minds, 21st century minds, would be that man's child is actually not his child. It's the dead brother's child. So there's some selfish reasons for Onan not to do what he's supposed to do. Essentially, he's refusing to provide for Tamar and give her a safe position within the family clan. Without a husband and without a child, a woman in this age is essentially destitute. She will either be reduced to begging or prostitution. 
There are no other options open to her. And to add insult to injury, Onan, after he dies, the Lord also kills him for wickedness. Judah has a young son who's not of marriage, mar- marriageable age. He promises Tamar, well, you'll have this kid when he's old enough. And the, the insult he has is he sends Tamar back to her father's house. She doesn't fit in any place. She's, not, she's part of Ur's clan now. And now she's sent back to her clan. And she's not going to be welcomed back. She is basically stuck. This woman is treated in a despicable fashion. And that's what we need to understand as we approach the next part of the story. Because if we just see it through our eyes, our 21st century eyes, she looks like she's conniving. She looks like she has no morals. Because she hears when she's apart from her father, and he's forgotten to give her forgotten I don't think so. The third son, think of Judah's position. He's had two sons marry this woman and die. Is he thinking, she's a black widow. I'm not giving her my third son. I'm not going to have any sons at this rate. So he conveniently forgets to give his third son. So we know a series of years have passed, and the boy's now marriageable age. Well, Tamar hears that Judah, a very prosperous man, is going on a business trip. And he, she knows the route he's taking. So she disguises herself. She wraps herself in a veil and goes, sits by the side of the road. And Judah is now a widower. His wife, who was a Canaanite, has died. He goes along the road. He sees this woman in a veil. He thinks she's a Canaanite cult prostitute. And he pulls over as you will, and he makes arrangements with her. He has relationships with her. She, of course, wants payment. She asks him, what do you give me? He says, I'll give you a young goat from my herd. She says, you don't have a young goat with you. I need collateral. What can you give me for collateral? Well, I got this staff and I got this signet ring. How about if I give these to you? So Judah surrenders the symbols of his tribal leadership to this woman, who he believes is a Canaanite prostitute. He goes merrily on his way. Three months later, he hears that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is with child. He's outraged. She's casting you know, a, a, a shadow of immorality on, on the family. She must be put to death. And as she's brought out to be put to death, she produces a staff and a signet ring. And she says, the man who made me pregnant, these are his. And Judah's like, those are mine. He realizes what happens. And he says that Tamar is more righteous than him because he failed to live up to what he was to do, to care for her. And that's to give his third son, Shelah, to her as a husband. So how does this connect to Genesis 6, 1 through, wolf, 1 through 4. There's this, there's this concept that the callers call the Enochic Watcher Template. And we're going to use that in each of these. And what we see, this, this template here, is that Tamar beautifies herself as a means of seduction of Judah. She puts on this veil, right, to disguise herself. Um, also, we have the idea of metallurgy. There's the signet, signet ring that Judah has that he gives her that is used as evidence against him. is something that's produced due to the illicit arts. Both these things, the, 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 uh, the beautification for seduction by women and the metallurgy, the, the making of the ring, are illicit arts taught by these watchers, or these sons of God. So now we come to the story of Rahab, the second woman in Matthew's genealogy. Find her story in Joshua chapter 2. And Rahab, unlike Tamar, 
who just played a prostitute in desperation. Rahab is actually a prostitute. She's the actual prostitute in Jericho. Her house was in the wall of the city of Jericho. And so what we think is that she was probably running an inn. There was probably an inn there, which is a polite word for something that covers for a brothel. So she's doing this. And if you know the story, you, you know what happens next. Joshua, they're, they're the leader of Israel, Moses is now dead. He's leading Israel into a God-ordained conquest of Canaan. Jericho's in Canaan. He sends two spies into Jericho to figure out what's the city look like, what's its defenses, etc., etc. They are hidden by Rahab. Rahab takes them, houses them, and hides them and covers up for them when the officials in Jericho and the Jericho PD show up looking for um, these guys. She covers for them. And what they tell her is that as a reward, if she places a scarlet cord outside her window, remember her place is on the wall, so the window would be on the wall, could be seen by attackers, hangs a scarlet cord, they'll make sure that she and all of her family, all who, who dwell with her, are saved, they're spared. Because God has ordered what's called harim against Jericho, and God orders harim against many other cities in the Jewish promised land. Harim means devoted to destruction. And when there's an order of harim given, the Israelite army is to kill every single living thing. Man, woman, child. No human beings are to survive if they are devoted to destruction. Hard concept, but it ties into this idea of what we're talking about with the Nephilim with, the, with the, the offspring, with the evil, gigantic offspring, because the areas where harim is declared by God in the wars of conquest are all related to giant clans. God is ordering this death, this, this, this all-inclusive wiping out, because those places, those people are connected to these evil, angelic beings. In essence, there's been a cross-contamination of human humanity there, and it needs to be removed. So Jericho is destroyed. Everybody is put to the sword, except for Rahab, who was rescued. She remains with the Israelites, the rest of her life. In fact, she marries into the Israelites. We see that she marries a man named Salmoon in the genealogy. And Jewish tradition is that Salmoon was one of these spies. Well, I can understand Salmoon having a soft spot for this woman who saved his life. You know, that's kind of, kind of attaches you to a person, doesn't it? And the interesting thing about the town prostitute in Jericho is what is written about her in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11.31, where it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. That's everyone else in Jericho. Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So here's the Enochic Watcher template for Rahab. She connects to not only warfare, but giants and angels here. Now, she obviously does not take up the weapons of war, but war is occurring around her, right? But in this sense, war is not a negative thing. God is using it for a necessary good. He needs to remove the evil that is present there. So she's connected with the illicit arts of war in the, in the carrying out of the decree of Harim. The fact that she was a prostitute. You know, most likely we're talking about the illicit art of seduction here, right? Another component of this template. And, and note, note how, how interesting it is that both these women we've read about, Tamar and Rahab, have a scarlet cord associated with them. 
The scarlet cord of redemption is given to both of them. Tamar, when she gives birth to the twins, and the first boy who sticks his, his arm out, the midwife wraps a scarlet cord around it. He pulls it back in. The second child is born, who is in the genealogy of Christ. And then the rescue cord, the, again, a scarlet cord for Rahab. So how does Ruth tie into this? Ruth is, is held up as a, as a woman that should be emulated, right? She's, she's a very caring uh, daughter-in-law. She's a hard worker. There's nothing that um, really that we see that's said negatively about her. Unless you're an ancient Jew and you read the story, you hear the story, you're going to blush because of the innuendos and the double entendres in it, which point to something very improper. So like Rahab, Ruth is clearly a Gentile. She's from Moab. We read this at the very beginning of, of the book of Ruth. And like Tamar, Ruth has found herself widowed with no child. And Ruth also is going to transgress social mores to gain security and a child. Ruth's Israelite mother-in-law is, is Naomi. And Naomi is widowed, right? So you have these two women that are widowed. They have, and, and Naomi's sons have all died, right? They, they have no way of being supported. They're, they're absolutely destitute. But Naomi comes up with a plan that if successful will result in this prosperous Jewish landowner, Boaz, redeeming Ruth through marriage. And that'll solve Ruth and Naomi's desperate, poverty-stricken situation. But what goes into this is what would make an ancient Israelite raise his or her eyebrow. So after a hard day's work, harvest, it's harvest time, Boaz eats and drinks until, as the text says, his heart is merry. So he's, he's feeling the effects of the wine, essentially. And so he lays down. And then we're told, Ruth then uncovers his feet. Now, as I had, well, that was in the, never mind. You, if you weren't here at 10 a.m., you wouldn't have heard me say this. <laughs> so I'll, I'll repeat myself. The ancient Israelites were very modest people. So they did not address things directly directly when it came to um, uh, you know, the more intimate details of lives. They, they used euphemisms. So she uncovered his feet. That's a euphemism for removing all of his clothes for an act of physical intimacy. So you're reading this. If you're an ancient Israelite, you're going, this woman is not so proper after all. She's doing something that she shouldn't be doing. Now, there is, it's very clear that this, there is no impropriety that occurs. But the way it's written, it's pointing us toward this, that, that, that Ruth is actually stepping over social boundaries. Although she does not sin, now, this is very important, she does not commit sin, but it is the appearance of sin. In fact, when it talks about Boaz spreading you know, his covering over her, that also is a euphemism for a man and a woman joining together in intimacy. And she has to leave before other people see, right? Because there's going to be talk about this. Leading up to this encounter, though, Naomi advises Ruth to take steps to increase her feminine desirability. She instructs her to make use of the arts of seduction, she anoints herself. She, she bathes herself and anoints herself, right? The use of cosmetics is going on here. That's named as, as illicit, uh, an, an illicit art in the Enochic Watcher template, the adornment of perfume and ointment. And we can't help but notice, because we're told seven times in the book, that Ruth is a Moabitess. She's from Moab. And Israelites associate Moabites with idolatry and Moabite women with sexual wantonness and seduction of Israelite men. Consider the incident of Baal of Peor in the book of Numbers. So many Israelites would have considered Ruth's conduct like a Canaanite 
prostitute, just like Rahab and just like Tamar. But Ruth and Boaz, of course, they get married. However, in Jewish scriptures, Deuteronomy 23, 2 through 3, declare the offspring from such a union as mamzer, or illegitimate. Now this term, this Jewish term mamzer, is the exact same term that Dead Sea Scrolls use to describe the offspring between the human women and the sons of God, or the watchers in Genesis 6. They are declared, the Nephilim are considered, declared memzir, they're illegitimate. Again, we've got this very odd, and frankly, you know, an obscure connection to this event in Matthew's genealogy. The fourth woman, listed by Matthew as the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, Hittite being non-Jewish, being a Gentile, is Bathsheba, right? And we all know the story of King David's affair with Bathsheba and his subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, in 2 Samuel. There's two elements, very obvious, of the Enochic Watcher template that are clear from the outset here. There's a sexual transgression that occurs. Unlike David, though, Bathsheba, I don't think it's proper to view her as a perpetrator. She's virtually powerless in this. She's summoned to the royal palace by the king. And we often know, even in our culture today, that powerful men are able to do things with women that they should not do because of their positions of power. I think that's what's going on with David and Bathsheba. I would hesitate to label her as a willing participant in this. So we have the sexual transgression and we have warfare. Two things that are illicit arts taught by the watchers. The warfare, it's clear in the circumstances of Uriah's arranged murder in battle by David's orders to the commanding general. In the book of Enoch, one of the watchers teaches humans how to make weapons of war and materials for the beautification of women. This being is, is called Azael. Interestingly, that the goat, one of the goats sacrificed on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, is sent out into the wilderness for Azazel. A connection there. Think about this, though. We have at the opening of the scene, David is on his rooftop. He's gazing down at Bathsheba, who is bathing on his, her rooftop. Obviously, the palace is much taller than the other buildings around, because after all, that's where the king lives. He gets the better stuff, right? This is just like it's described in this Jewish Second Temple literature of the watchers, the sons of God, gazing down from heaven on human women going through their normal, everyday things of life and lusting after them. They leave their heavenly station in disobedience to God. They transgress. They leave their estate, as the New Testament writers often put it, and they enter the human estate, physicality. The fact that David is on his roof is mentioned twice in this account. The writer does not want us to miss this, that David is on the roof. And he, the verse also emphasizes Bathsheba's beauty. The woman was very beautiful. So both David and the watchers knew, according to the text, that they were guilty of transgression, of a great transgression in taking these respective women. And Bathsheba's name even gives us uh, even more of a connection to what's going on. In 2 Samuel, she's called Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam. But in 1 Chronicles 3.5, she has a different name. She's Bathshua, the daughter of Emiel. And in Hebrew... That first part of that name there, Bath, means daughter. So in Hebrew, it says that she is the daughter of Shua. Now bear in mind that if you're the daughter or the son of, doesn't mean you're the direct descendant. 
it could be a forebear, it could be a, a grandparent, right? But she is a daughter of Shua. The daughter of Shua, going back to Tamar, is Judah's unnamed Canaanite wife. She's a daughter of Shua. This tells us that Bathsheba was very likely a Canaanite. She's a daughter, her name means daughter of this Canaanite man. So we have a connection here again to the Gentiles. This strengthens the idea that Matthew is picking up on women with specific histories for inclusion in this genealogy. And Matthew shows that the birth of Jesus occurs in a way that reverses the watcher's transgression and evil in the world as it occurs in the Enoch template. Specifically, the birth of Jesus occurs through the union of a woman and a celestial being. But in contrast to the watcher's story, no sexual relations are involved. Further, in Matthew's narrative, the first humans outside of Jesus' immediate family to interact with him are these wise men from the East, the Magi. These are practitioners of these illicit arts taught by the watchers. And what do they use to find Jesus? They use astrology. They use an illicit art to find the birth of the king of kings. Do you see how God is using these things, these wicked things that weren't to be known by humanity, how it's used to bring about the greatest good that could ever occur? So they bring this in, the Enochic watcher template of the, of the watchers brings idolatry into the world. But in Matthew, he shows the Magi worship the appropriate object of worship. Rather than idolatry, who do they turn to? They turn to the newly born Son of God, the God, God the Son incarnate. So he's drawing attention, Matthew is, to these four women and the sins of the watchers, the reversal of the watchers through this genealogy. And you see how these bits and pieces come together. And the gospel demonstrates that Jesus is able to bring about the eschatological repair of this transgression, the consequences of the fall of the watchers, and the entirety of the Bible attests to this. So Christ has taken abused sinners like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, and every one of us, and transformed them and us into a pure and spotless bride for himself. Think about this. An abused, tarnished, dirty prostitute is turned into a spotless virgin given to God the Son. Now that label applies to every single one of us. And that is just absolutely breathtaking. The Bible tells us how this works. In Ephesians, Paul refers to a marriage between a man and a woman. He says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's what marriage is about. And we're told also by Paul in Ephesians that Christ chose us before the foundation of the world. Why? that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's not something we can do. We cannot make ourselves holy or blameless. Christ does. He goes on to say that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, he identifies Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ they were all waiting for. And how does he say that that man is the Christ? Because he says he is the bridegroom and he has the bride. Second Corinthians, Paul writes to the church, I betrothed you. He's talking to us. I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. <clears throat> then Revelation, full of symbolic language. John sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
Now, don't take that literally. John is not talking about an actual city coming down out of heaven. It's representative of something that I want you to see here that I hope you'll see and connect to everything we talked about. He's talking about the church. He's talking about us here. In Revelation 21, 9 through 11, one of the seven angels who carried one of the bowls of the seven last plagues said to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystals. The jewel, that's the point I want you to see here. The city is described as adorned with jewels. In Isaiah 61.10, it says, God gives us salvation and righteousness as a bride is adorned with jewels. Back to Revelation, chapter 19, it says, The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to wear fine linen, bright and pure. This symbolizes virgin status and purity, which has been restored. There's a special permission here, right? It's not something that the bride has earned. It has been granted to her. It has been given to her. Otherwise, she would not be able to wear this virginal clothing. In Revelation 21.12, the heavenly bride of Christ is described as having a great high wall and gates are guarded by angels. Now I need you to use your poetic imagination here to understand this. If we're talking about the virgin bride of Christ, which is us, it has, we have high walls guarding us. The virginity of the bride cannot be taken away. It has divine protection. And the gates into her are guarded by mighty angels. You cannot lose that which God gives you. You have been restored by God. It cannot be taken away by anything you do or anything that someone does to you. You are guarded by angels. You are kept safe behind high walls. Because outside those walls, in verse 15 of Revelation 21, it says, are those who have besmirched, abused, and murdered the bride of Christ. They await their judgment. Justice will be done. You, on the other hand, are safe. Even though those who would destroy you are right outside the walls, God will not let them get to you. He loves you that much. So Christ has caused this great reversal to take place. He's undone, undone completely the effects of a world-destroying rebellion of angels and humans. And the implements of evil that came about in this transgression are used against the transgressors. God takes the bad stuff and uses it against the bad people to bring good stuff out of it. It transforms and restores the world back to its Edenic ideal, back to the Garden of Eden. And just like the death of Christ confounded the fallen angels that thought, we kill him, we won. It brings about something that destroys them. So does this rebellion bring about the means that God uses to undo what they've done. They can't win. They can't win for losing, like the story goes. So we should see in Christ's work to undo the sin of the watchers, the answer to the yearning that is in every human heart, although this yearning is often buried very deeply. Because to admit it brings the fear of disappointment. And it brings pain. This, is, this yearning is to be loved by someone so much that our lover will move heaven and earth to rescue us from the evil that has chained us. King Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, before these events occurred, he writes a verse that I think encapsulates this wonderfully. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7, Solomon writes to his bride. Think of this. This is Christ speaking to his bride. 
You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. It's been taken away. So this is the classic romance of St. George and the Dragon. The church is the princess, the one who is loved and fought for. The fallen angelic watchers are the dragon, those that need to be fought. And Jesus Christ is St. George, the one who does both the loving and the fighting. So in our crazy world, do not despair, but marvel at what you are part of. Look forward to that day when you will see that ancient dragon slain and you can tell others of this legendary romance that you've been part of. Please pray with me in clothing. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the love that you have for us. Father, we give thanks for the story that you have told us. It's just, it's, un, it's hard to wrap our minds around, Father, the, the immensity of your love and, and your sovereignty, your goodness. Father, I just ask that you write that in our hearts and our minds, that we may keep this in mind as we deal with all of the issues that are going on in this day and age and the despair that we often face and we often feel, Lord. I pray that you restore in us this message of hope that you give us, Father. Bless this day as we go through it, Father. Bless all our sisters here, the physical moms and the spiritual moms, Lord. They are a blessing to us. We give thanks for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.